movies, sports, TV shows, gaming. Playbase adds dynamic, pulse-pounding sound to whatever's playing on your TV and streams your favorite music when it's off, yet its low-profile design practically disappears beneath your television. And now, for the first time ever, Sonos is offering listeners of Binge Mode this podcast. 10% off one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. This offer is available for a limited time only. Cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Just use the promo code BINGE10, capital B-I-N-G-E-1-0, at Sonos.com to receive this exclusive offer. Hey, Grandmaster Picel. Can you tell us the warning about Binge Mode's adult content? Well, I think about, I think about Binge Mode. Is, uh, binge Mode contains <laughs> adult situations. Contains violence and sex. <sighs> Never mind. Here's Binge Mode. I'm Queen Regent. Listen to me, Queen Regent. You're losing the people. Do you hear me? <laughs> the people. You think I care? You might find it difficult to rule over millions who want you dead. You want to be handed the king? You want to rule? This is what ruling is. Lying on a bed of weeds, ripping them out by the root one by one before they strangle you in your sleep. I'm no king, but I think there's more to ruling than that. I don't care what you think! And yeah. welcome to Binge Mode. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished sampling Shay's fish pie. Oh my God. <laughs> it's Ringer staff writer and your maester, Jason Concepcion. Jason? Fish pie makes me want to fuck. Jason, the one true god. Yeah as we all know, is what's between a woman's legs. And the one true aim of this podcast is to rewatch all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones and deep dive one episode at a time. Spoiler warning, as usual for all of you, we will be going deep on details from the show and the books from this season and beyond. It's time to sharpen our blades, shave a spider's ass, and break down season two, (laughs) episode two, The Nightlands. All right, Jason, Cersei has lost count of how many kings there are now, so let's help her out. There's five. Joffrey, Stannis, Renly, Rob, Mance. Let's quickly take a trip down the King's Road to offer a brief refresher on what actually happened in the second episode. On the King's Road, gold cloaks are searching for Gendry. They make contact with Yorin's caravan of Night's Watch recruits. Yorin manages to get the drop on him. And they promise to return. Later, Arya reveals her true identity, Gendry. In King's Landing, Varys, power move, shows up in Shay's chambers. He's letting Tyrion know that he knows what's up. He knows what's happening. Tyrion, not intimidated. He also is chairing his first official small council meeting. Cersei is reading Rob's Declaration of Northern Independence. Tyrion... A little bit of a softy, not 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 a total hard ass. He agrees to one of these conditions, which is to release Ned's bones, Ned's old bones. Another letter has also reached King's Landing, though, and this is from Mormont. It's the request for more men and a warning of strange happenings beyond the wall. Tyrion, after he finishes issuing a warning about taking that seriously, dismisses Janos Slint as commander of the City Watch, one of his sister's spies. 
sends him to the wall and installs Bronn, his own man, as the new commander. Good riddance. Up at Craster's Keep, Sam and Gilly meet cute. Sam saves Gilly, kind of, or more more likely saved her rabbit from Ghost. <laughs> she tells him that he's brave, and after he melts, she tells him that she's also pregnant and asks for help escaping from Craster. John, all of a sudden a stickler for the rules, talks Sam down. Later, John witnesses Craster give an infant to the White Walkers and is waylaid by Craster himself. In the Red Waste, across the narrow sea, Ricaro, one of Danny's blood riders, returns from his scouting mission, but there's just there's one problem, and that is that he's dead. His head is in a sack on the side of a tough. horse. Really tough. Eerie is absolutely distraught, talking about how they murdered his soul and he can't ride with his ancestors in the night, Nightlands, the scene from which this episode takes its name. Pike, the Iron Islands. Theon returns home in truly pathetic fashion, acting the high lord and swaggering hero. And the Iron Islanders treat him coldly as an outsider, none more so than his father, Balon, who considers him a creature, a whore of the Starks. Lord Balon puts Yara in charge of his attack fleet instead of Theon. Uh, Yara, whom Theon had previously <laughs> molested on their horseback ride up to the up to Balon's castle. Meanwhile, and also by the way, Theon was like, "Hey, uh, you're not good at driving. Let me drive." <laughs> real douchebag. Yeah, real jerk. <laughs> this real, guy. Real piece of garbage. Yeah. Uh, finally, over on Dragonstone, Stannis needs he needs two things: one, a winning personality, and two, a fleet. Yeah. Luckily. He has Davos, his Onion Knight, to compensate for his lack of the first and to help him negotiate for the acquisition of the second from Andy Greenwald's favorite sex pirate, Salador San. Uh, champion. Melisandre, meanwhile, seduces Ooh. Stannis, he of noble virtue, by promising him victory and a son. You must pledge yourself to the Lord of Light. By fucking me on this painted I table. I said the word. Uh, what? Whoa. whoa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. Stannis's wife may be sick, weak, and shut away in a tower, but we're right here. She's weak, my king. We are strong, and we are here, and we are ready to cut to the core of this episode's big idea by sticking it with the pointy end. Oh, on that table. The defining theme of this episode is identity. How do these characters perceive themselves, right? How do they want other people? people to perceive them those are not always the same thing but coming to terms with who you are and then finding a way to channel that self-awareness into mass understanding or respect or standing or all of the above is one of the central challenges and tensions of this story and we see numerous characters begin to grapple with that in this episode we see the burden of identity weigh most heavily on Theon, who returns to the Iron Islands after spending the bulk of his formative years as a Stark ward. You have to feel for Theon because he's been a ward of the Starks for nine years. They raised him as a member of their own family, not necessarily as a hostage. I think we're about to see that that had um, negative consequences for both sides of that equation. So when he arrives back in the Iron Islands. He's expecting this grand meeting. Hey, here's the the only living son of Balon Greyjoy, and he that's not what he gets. You know, he he arrives delusional. They'll be waiting for me in the docks. Anyone who matters this is a big day for them. They haven't had much to get excited about since I left. This poor fucking idiot. Come on. <laughs> uh, and you know, he says they say hard places breed hard men, and hard men rule the world, which means he knows just enough about the legend 
of the island islands to to get that right, but not enough about what it actually means to be to be from there. You get a picture of this when Theon is with the captain's daughter. He's having sex with her, and they start talking about salt wives. Salt wives can only be taken in battle, and Theon's speaking about this in a really casual way, not really understanding the implications of what that would actually mean. So already he's misunderstanding one of the kind of key components of Iron Island's culture. And when he shows up in Balon's presence, Balon, you know, is basically like, who are you? Who is this guy? Nine years, is it? They took a frightened boy. What have they given back? <laughs> and Theon says, a man, your blood and your air. We shall see. Stark had you longer than I did. Lord Stark is gone. And how do you feel about that? And that's the primary question, right? Yeah, I mean, Balon may be human garbage, he's, but he's not, he? he's not stupid, right? right. He's yeah, not he's ignorant smart. to the ways of the world. Right. He has been in battles. He staged a rebellion. Yes. He understands human nature. And he knows the risk that Theon's time away poses. So when he says things like, was it Ned Stark's pleasure to make you his daughter? He is not only showing that he's not really hip to modern day gender norms. He's showing that he doesn't trust Theon or the person Theon has become because he doesn't trust the person Theon was with. He's saying to Theon, basically, do you even know who you are? He's questioning Theon's identity, Theon makes which, the of mistake course, Theon of, is questioning as well. Theon makes the mistake of not dressing for the job he right. wants. I won't have my son dressed as a whore, yeah. he says. That bauble around your <laughs> neck. Did you pay the iron price or the gold price? You'll talk more about what that means a little bit later in the episode. But, you know, the risk, it's not just Theon's sense of self it's his sense of other people right yeah. Balon gets frostiest with Theon when Theon talks about his brothers or when he talks about the idea of brotherhood right. rather right he says he's, he's talking about Rob and how he's in with Rob and he says he thinks of of me as a brother and Balon loses it right not here you as you would as brother. you would imagine his sons were killed by the Starks and the Baratheons and know? Theon's lack of awareness about why it's yeah. a bad idea to say something like that right. tells us a lot about who he is and more importantly who he isn't right Right. and then Balon doesn't know who his son is but he knows who his daughter is right Right. she has killed men she has captain ships she knows who she is he's literally saying to Theon she has a sense of identity she has a clear grasp on who she is and on what her role is you don't even know how to dress for dinner the stark madness of mercy strikes again Littlefinger of course peeping his his scene in the Nightlands is famous for the peephole sequence, which is, let's just say it, a cinematic achievement and a masterpiece in storytelling. But it should be equally famous, really, for what it tells us about Littlefinger's character, yeah. because his I hate bad investments, they haunt me speech to Roz is it's right out of the pushover becomes pusher playbook. And it is a clear insight into his priorities his motivations and his world view he wants to get ahead he doesn't want to work with people who are going to keep him behind and he's not afraid to let them know that even if it makes him seem like a huge fucking dick right like his other really key line in that exchange is sometimes those with the most power have the least grace (laughs) this is telling in terms of how how we understand how Littlefinger views himself, his identity, because 
it shows us that he thinks he's better than his betters, right? Like he is really tormented by this idea, this feeling that why does he have to answer to people who don't have the same savviness or They've the been same born instincts. into this. Exactly. And it's his great resentment right. and his great motivator. And we hear it in that line. Tyrion and Varys have an interesting exchange in that Tyrion wants to show Varys who he is and Varys is quite openly testing him. When when Varys uh, shows up, Tyrion tells him, I don't like threats. Well, who threatened who? I'm not Ned Stark. I understand the way this game is played. And Varys says, Ned Stark was a man of honor. Tyrion, and I'm not. Threaten me again and I'll have you thrown into the sea. You might be disappointed in the results. Storms come and go. The big fish eat the little fish. And I keep on paddling. That's great stuff. There's a, there's a lot to break down there. First of all, I'm not Ned Stark. I'm not a man of honor. What he's saying there is, listen, I understand that honor is like a mask. And it's something to be worn for public consumption when it is useful to you. But when it's time to get things done... I can stab a person in the back just as as well as the next person. And Varys gives us insight into who he is. You know, he's come from across the sea. He's had terrible things happen to him. He came to a new city and really, much like Littlefinger, made himself into mm-hmm. the man he is. Uh, and he gives us insight into this. You know, he's a survivor. You know, there are sea changes that have happened. Robert came in. The Targaryens are gone. He's still here, even though he served that regime. And that says something about his usefulness and his ability to survive. You know, Varys isn't the only one who gets a little bit of Tyrion's Marlowe treatment. You know, his my name (laughs) is my name action because Jano Slint really suffers the brunt of Tyrion's clarity of who he is now that he's handed the king. Wines him and dines him at least. Yes, he does. It's not just it's not just about him outwitting People, it's about him outwittying people. Yeah. Like, he just is very funny. Right. He has a lot of great lines, a lot of great singers. He also shows us that he's not afraid to play with his food, right? Like, he is just flat fucking with Slint throughout this yeah. entire exchange. I'm not questioning your honor, Lord Janos. I'm denying its existence. I hope you enjoy the wall. I found it surprisingly beautiful in a brutal, horribly uncomfortable sort of way. That's gold. It's great. That's showing that he knows that he has the upper hand in that conversation and really in every conversation that he's having right now and that he everybody is is operating at his whim at this moment. And the other really interesting subtle little moment that Tyrion has in this episode is when he follows up with Bronn after exiling Janos and asks him basically like would you have done what he did? Would yeah. you have killed a baby? You know, no questions asked. And Bronn says Without question, no, I'd asked how much. First of all, deeply disturbing. Right. Second of all, got to admire Bronze business savvy. <laughs> and third, this is crucial because it shows us that Tyrion does not consider himself a finished right. product yet. He's always trying to gather intel both about the people who are surrounding him either as allies or foes, but also about himself. Where is is the boundary? Where should it be? You know, he's trying constantly to get a sense of his surroundings and a sense of how he should operate within that context. Very few people are maneuvering so consistently in such in such a way. Yeah, he's trying to find just how ruthless he's willing to be in this given situation. Uh, his sister, Cersei, as ever, too focused on herself and the people around her. Tyrion says, you're losing the people. She replies, the people you think I care? 
He explains why she should. You might find it difficult to rule over millions who want you dead. Good advice. Uh, she's going to try to see how difficult that is, I think, in, in coming seasons. <laughs> but that's just not how she thinks. You know, she thinks of power. She's much more like Joffrey in that sense. Or, you know, but to be fair, a, a more refined version of Joffrey. She sees power as uh, power for its own sake. Uh, she wants to order something and to have it be done. She says at various points throughout the series that she should have been a man. She says right. this to Robert. I should be the one in the armor. And you in skirts. That's right. Yeah. And she hated Robert, but she has you know some of the same flaws as him, which Pycelle kind of talked about. They say a man who goes through life with his battle visor down can often be blind to the— Wait, oh, sorry. They say a man who goes through life with his battle visor down can often be blind to Mm. And she has that, you know, she, she has that tunnel vision. She has that Absolutely. tunnel vision as well. She's looking for threats. Who's out to get me? Who's looking to undermine me? Who's standing in the way of what I want? Yeah, she sucks. But in a in a way that's, uh, you know, the thing that's kind of refreshing about her is you always kind of understand where you where you stand with Cersei. There's it's a, true. She's not one for subtlety, no, is a, she? There's a cunning about her, but it's a certain kind of, of cunning that you know when you've crossed her. Yeah. I mean, when she says to Tyrion, mother gone for the sake of you, right. there's no bigger joke in the world than that. That's not gamesmanship. That's cruelty. Right. Flat out. And it's also a really fascinating glimpse into how she identifies, how she perceives yeah. herself. She actually thinks this person who is the daughter of Tywin Lannister, right, a member of one of the most powerful, certainly richest families in the Seven Kingdoms, former wife of the king, Robert Baratheon, queen, yep. mother of the king, queen regent, seems to be doing okay for herself, right? Yeah. She thinks that she's the wronged party, that As she's always. the aggrieved, that she is someone who is owed, and that sense of everyone basically being in her debt particularly Tyrion as we as we learn in this moment like that is completely what informs every decision that she makes that and her love for her children which again other than the cheekbones the one redeeming quality Sam and John are trying to figure out how to be part of this Night's Watch thing yeah, they are. Uh, you really see John trying to remake himself as Lord Commander Mormont his new father figure all of a sudden, John cares about the rules. Wait a second. We can't uh, be giving thimbles to wildling girls and, and talking to them and stuff. <laughs> Meanwhile, like, I rode away from Castle Black and tried to, to desert. But it's not long before his rebellious tendencies surface. You know, he sees Craster creep into the woods doing something, infant child, and you get a sense of John's innate goodness here. Mm -hmm. He can sense that this is wrong. Whatever right. this is, this is wrong. Innate goodness and innate inability that, to just never stay out of it. Like, right. he just can't help himself. Right. He's always got to get involved, and then he's always got to get caught. Yeah, he's a chronic meddler, and he's bad at it. Kind of like Ned. Right. <laughs> Sam, meanwhile, is the guy who's okay with himself. He's a coward, and he'll tell you that he's okay being a coward. He tried being the brave guy. He chased down John. Of course, he had help. Tried being Gilly's knight in shining armor. You're very brave. It's probably the first time he's ever heard that. It must have meant the world to him. No, it don't. It don't brings him to action. No one tell Gilly that Sam knows that that wolf. And that <laughs> when John asks who he deliver the baby to, he said he, you know, he he could try. It's very he's sweet. A man. It's yeah. 
He's 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 growing up before our very eyes. Arya is as well, of course, but she is the one who is most overtly actually pretending to be right. a different person. She is literally masking her identity for the sake of her protection, for the sake of her safety, right? Fascinating reaction when the gold cloaks come calling. Who who else possibly could be like a, a valuable target here? Shocking who else could be right. not what we think, not what we see? Like this is very new to her and so yeah, she's she's surprised. It also doesn't take her very long in showland here to just fold and reveal everything. Like <laughs> It's a life or death situation, Arya. Yeah, just, dude, like, just do that. Like, hang on for another <laughs> right moment here. Really fast, giving up the ruse here. But even, I love how even in this life or death moment, she is, like, pushing back so hard on the idea of being a lady. Like, yeah. when Gendry's all like, I should be calling you my lady. And she, you know, harkens back to the that's not me line from Ned. She literally pushes him over, you know. And and then, of course, there's Davos and his son Mathos, you know, Davos isn't religious yeah. like his son. True believer than Mathos. Yes. But but interesting that you should say that because Davos is a true believer just of a different sort, right? right? He's a true believer in Stannis. He says to to Salador when he's trying to convince him to commit ships to the fleet, like, you're a smart gambler. Stannis has proven himself in war twice. Then he says later, there's no man in the Seven Kings more honorable than Stannis Baratheon, no more worthy of loyalty. And then later, he's the one true king. When he's talking to Mathos and they're discussing the nature of belief, the nature of faith, Davos says, you want me to have a god? Fine. King Stannis is my god. He raised me up. He gave you a future I could never have imagined. Davos's identity is fully tied up in his perceptions of Stannis. Like, he isn't even his own man, right? right. He is a former smuggler, very fittingly. <clears throat> He's a ship in a fleet, and that's how he wants it. That's how he derives a sense of purpose. That's how he perceives order. Now we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. You know what I like to do when I have time, which isn't a lot, but I do like to do it? I like to play video games. And you know what's awesome is, like, video game explosions on my Sonos. Mm. This is, like, a real thing that I do that I think probably makes my neighbors, like, incredibly angry and also, like, scares Milton when I, like, oh, no. he does. Like, he doesn't, like, I... He'll get I, used to it. He'll adjust. I, would like, sleep to, like, the sound of rain. That's my, that's my life, guys. Welcome. Soothing. And it is extremely soothing. And, like, the thunder sometimes scares Milton. Anyway, <laughs> everything sounds better on Playbase. Movies, sports, TV shows, gaming. Yes, gaming. The gaming sounds freaking awesome. Playbase adds dynamic, pulse-pounding sound to whatever's playing on your TV and streams your favorite music when it's off. It does do that. It's, it streams my sound of rain that I use when I sleep. Truth is, most TVs end up on stands and furniture, exactly what Playbase was created for. Its low-profile design practically disappears beneath your TV. I can't even see the thing. <laughs> Yet it fills your entire viewing room with epic home theater audio. Start with a Playbase and add a sub and a pair of Play Ones for a full surround sound system. That's what I did. It sounds freaking great. You can even send TV or music sound around your entire home. Just add Sonos smart speakers and other rooms and they'll wirelessly sync to your home theater and now for the first time ever sonos is offering listeners of binge mode 10 percent off one order of 2500 dollars or less for any product on sonos.com bargain it's a bargain guys this offer is available for a limited time only and cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions just use the promo code binge 10 capital b-i-n-g-e one zero at sonos.com to receive this exclusive offer Okay, now back to binge mode. 
Stannis is a, a great example of the power of slights, real and perceived, and kind of like the common thing that happens in the show and in life where people conflate their identity with a position or a job title and not the way that they treat other people. Much like Cersei, Stannis feels wronged. He is the rightful king simply because of his position in the line of succession. In the most coldly rational sense, that's true, but it doesn't take into account that everybody freaking hates him, uh, you know, and he's jealous, you know, he's weirdly jealous about certain things, like the way he looks when Melisandre whispers into Mathos's ear, you know, what is, what, what is this? What? And of course his inability to even consider, you know, having a real conversation with his brother Renly about the future of the realm comes from this kind of petty jealousy, his desire to be loved and supported, but not for who he is, but because of, where he's born, his right. position. You know, this is what you should do because you should do right. it. Right. They should love me because they're supposed to. They should follow me because they're supposed to. Exactly. And in some ways, the most important observation we can make about Stannis is that he's someone who has to be talked into having faith in stuff. Man, how is Mathos following this dude? Crazy. Uh-huh. All right, Maester. Melisandre is determined to give Stannis a son, and we are determined to give our listeners the proper context that they need to fully appreciate everything unfolding on this show. So let's grab those mirish oranges. Let's grab Ooh, that, that arbor wine. Some citrus. That nearest air. Let's trade. Assemble the conclave let's and go. head to the Citadel to learn everything we need to know about the history of the Greyjoy Rebellion and Iron Island's culture. We do not sow. These are the words of House Greyjoy, the rulers of the Iron Islands since the time of Aegon the Conqueror and one of the leading families of the Iron Islands from time immemorial. There are 44 Iron Islands in all, 31 in the main cluster around Pike, which is the seat of the Greyjoys. It's located right in the mouth of Iron Man's Bay, the west coast of Westeros, kind of between the north uh, and the Westerlands. And then there are 13 more Eight long days sail west into the Sunset Sea around Lonely Light, where it gets real, real weird around there. Um, (laughs) There are three regions of Westeros that are kind of different than the rest. There's the north. They're primarily different because the first men are the dominant ethnic culture there, and they they still hold to the old gods. So it's a religious and an ethnic difference, but they're still very much like the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. There's Dorne, which we'll get into much more later, but because of their kind of, just like the North, their isolation and their the influence of the Roinar culture, they've got a really different thing going with some more gender equality. And then there's the Iron Islands, and they are super, super, super different. They're not only, they're isolated, for one, literally separate from the realm. They have, we think, the blood of the First Men, so they're, they're primarily First Men, although there's some there's some arguments to be made that they're something else. And they their culture is based upon preying on the rest of Westeros. The orange of the Ironborn are kind of mysterious. The, the maesters insist that they are of the first, first men, as I said. Ironborn legend says they came from the sea. And pretty much as long as anyone can remember, the Ironborn have made their livelihoods by enslaving, raiding, raping others, taking the, their goods. So in the earliest of days, they even they even raided each other. 
Um, but what put a stop to this was the influence of the drowned priests, which is the Iron Islands have their own religion, the religion of the drowned god, and it's extremely influential there. The greatest of these prophets, Galen Whitestaff, decreed that Ironborn must not war against Ironborn. And to further disincentivize intra-island warfare, he created the Kingsmoot, which is this gathering of captains that chooses the next king, and that's meant to kind of cut down on this warfare. And that really ushered in the golden Ironborn era. They ranged and raided every coast. They carried away villagers far and wide. King Korid, who was like the greatest of the Ironborn kings, used to boast that his dominion reached wherever men could smell salt water or hear the crash of the waves. Pretty ominous. Gradually, though, over the centuries, the Ironborn strength faded. Andals invaded Westeros. They had shipbuilding technology, better weapons, and they began to fight back and kind of pick off the Ironborn colonies along the coast one by one. The Faith of the Seven was introduced to the islands, and though this caused a lot of turmoil, it further kind of diluted the culture of the Iron Islands. Aegon came in and he outlawed reaving. This took for a little while, but what you get with all these kind of checks on the core Ironborn culture is this weird brew of weakness and victimhood and a core social culture of displays of strength. We take things from people. That's how we live. But at the same time, look what they've done to us. They killed my sons. They took everything right. from us. You know, we must punish these people. And so that's, that's the situation that Theon walks into after nine years in Two Iron Islanders, the soft, mm -hmm. woman-like north, <laughs> the Greenlands, where people just grow and pay, grow food and pay for stuff like weirdos. <laughs> sounds pretty normal to me. Sounds sounds kind of <laughs> yeah. great. Yeah. Weakness and victimhood with the show of strength yeah. sounds to me like Theon should be right at home because yes, that's he, that's kind of him in a nutshell. He can't wait to try and prove himself to his father, and it will have tragic consequences. Love a king's mood. Democracy in action, really. Let's do it. All right, Maester, all that salt talk has given a girl a thirst. <laughs> so let's pour one out, and then let's head to bathe in the light of the seven ah. by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations and hindsight nuggets from this episode, lightning round style. You go first. Up at Craster's, when Sam shoes off Ghost, you hear a horse kind of nicker as he runs by. That would be a problem with uh, direwolves. Horses are absolutely terrified of them. But they're so sweet and fluffy. I don't get it. Number two. Interesting role reversal for Tyrion in this episode. In season one, he's the one making fun of Jon for believing in Grumpkins and Snarks. And now he's the one getting the one trip to the wall and you come back believing in Grumpkins and Snarks? Yeah. Line from Cersei. And he's the one defending the Night's Watch pleas for help, for assistance, and their belief that the White Walkers might really be back. And it might seem like a small thing, but it matters because so many of these characters are so rigid in their beliefs and in what they're willing to accept. And Tyrion adapts, and that's what this shows us. Number three. You know, sometimes when you think something's a side quest, it turns out to be the main quest in the Game of Thrones. Jockin' from his cage to Arya, a man has a thirst, a boy could make a friend, foreshadowing a important relationship to come. Number four, when Tyrion enters his chambers and he finds Shay and Varys yeah, together, is this. is he humming the reins yeah, of Castamere? Oh, priming the viewers. This crucial tune, which will be used in a crucial scene, just right there for you. Back up at the sausage party north of the wall at Craster's, Sam says, 
Nothing like the sight of a woman walking away. Gren, I prefer to see them coming toward me. Sam, I'm sure that's nice too. By the way, you can't Great really stuff. you can't really pick out the f- the form of a woman through those like seal and bear <laughs> pelts. Not yeah, really it's a heavy fitting. covering. Yeah. No, no Melisandre's up right. there, that's for sure. Number six, major Blackwater foreshadowing here. As Davos and Mathos are leaving the meeting, Mel stops Mathos and whispers in his ear, the Lord of Light shines through you, young warrior, she says, and then she leans in, and we can't hear at the time, and Stannis, because he's super jealous, right? He says, well, what did you say? What did you just whisper to that attractive, virile young man? And she says, I told him death by fire is the purest death. How Stana wonderful. says, why? And she says, because it's true. Mathos will find out that this is, in fact, true. <laughs> poor, poor fucker. All right, number seven. Uh, there's got to be a more comfortable place to fuck than Aegon's great painted table. Stannis and Mel creating the smoke baby. By the way, like if there was a list of landmarks of Westeros where you want to like have a bodily movement I would think pissing off the wall <laughs> shitting out of the moon door and <laughs> having sex on the painted table that's top three certainly it just it's up there it seems like it hurts there's like all this little like know, little boat monopoly pieces there and he little, just throws her down on it those little topographical features just poking into you yeah, that's no good yeah. that's no good well you know hard, hard places breed hard men <laughs> Oh, Jason. Okay, yes. we have seen the path to victory in the flames, and that path includes crowning this week's champion. Each episode, we're honoring the person who played the game and advanced his or her cause in the most tangible or enjoyable way. And this week, the winner, and guys, we're just going to say it now, he's going to be winning a lot yeah, this season. This is like the Chicago Bulls of the 90s right here. It's Alabama football zone. Woo! Tyrion Lannister, the dynastic champion's purse winner. Tyrion really owns it in this episode. He really does. He gets waylaid by Varys, who shows up in Shay's quarters, and Tyrion is unflappable. He goes toe-to-toe, goes right back at the dude. He really hangs. He also manages to take a huge threat off the board. Janos, as Tyrion notes, didn't really do right by some prior hands, so that's eliminating a direct threat to Tyrion's person, but also, just as crucially, maybe even more so, eliminating one of Cersei's pawns. He figures out that Joffrey, not Cersei, had Robert's bastards killed, and he did that basically just by intuition, knowledge of his own sister in the way she didn't strongly deny it. Right. Read in the room. That's right. Really knows how to read the room. He also knows how to get his dudes where they need to be, and he's installed Bronn as the head of the city watch. This gives Tyrion power. We saw what the gold cloaks meant in season one when Ned and Littlefinger, and we would come to find out in time, Cersei were jockeying for control of those swords and those shields. Numbers matter, right? Well, Stannis, right. Is, Stannis is agonizing over that with Melisandre. Right. The side with the greater, the greater numbers win. The gold cloaks are numbers, and now Bronn is in control of those, which means Tyrion is. And most crucially of all perhaps he finds that meat swinger podrick Payne, sex god pod. sex god pod what a win i love pod yeah pod's the true the true champion he's always, always now he's always, always got a weapon he's always got a club on him that guy 
All right, friends, we don't offer free rides to every man in jewelry, but we are offering this ongoing ride to you. So we hope that you had as much fun as we did today, and we hope that you will join us next time when we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 3, What is Dead May Never Die. Until then, just remember, this is important. If the gods wanted us to have dignity, they wouldn't make us fart when we die. And the wrestling turned to something else. (laughs) If you get my meaning.